0: Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk Period, the podcast for people who want all things real, raw, and reputable, where we smash taboos and break down stigmas. I'm your host, Isabella Gosling, and today's episode is with Amy Kate Isaacs, the founder, director, and principal psychologist at The Mindful Collective amy kate is first and foremost a dog mum and a therapy dog handler to evie an outgoing italian greyhound she is also the curriculum director of girl kind and all kind she always has a few projects in the works so she is grateful for evie's energy and enthusiasm as it keeps her resilient together with her team They are passionate about inspiring mindful and compassionate change in those who are a part of the collective, whatever that looks like for each individual. In this chat, we talk on Amy's career trajectory and the pivots she's taken to become the founder, director and principal psychologist at the Mindful Collective. Amy's experiences with navigating the health field herself and how this has influenced her as a clinician. Why in 2021 there is still stigma around mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression. Tips for reducing anxiety when seeing a psychologist for the first time. How a psychologist can form part of your healthcare team and assist you when you have a chronic condition how to navigate and strengthen relationships when you are chronically ill, plus so much more. Now, just a content warning for this one, Amy does disclose her experiences with sexual assault, and this might be triggering for some listeners. Now, here is Amy. Amy, welcome to Let's Talk Period. I am absolutely delighted to be chatting with you today. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm excited to be here with you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. And now I'm not sure if you know, but the first question we ask all of our guests that come onto the pod is all about nourishing their bodies. So what have you done to nourish your body today?
1: Well, the first thing that I do most mornings is meditate. But this morning I had to get up particularly early. I got up at 4.15 because I wanted to go and see my particular exercise physiologist who is also a Pilates instructor in Brisbane. Her name is Holly and she is wonderful. And in order to get my small group class with her, I had to wake up very early. But that was something that I did today to nourish my body and also taking my medication. I think that's something that's so underrated. Mm. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Oh Well, like good on you for the early wake up and it's so worth it to go to that class and get who you want for the class <laughs> <laughs> and completely yes. agree with the medication as well. Like it's something that just seems so necessary and so mundane, but it's also so important as well. Yes. My body loves it
1: when I do it. And I'm sure we'll talk about um, my health journey as we go further on, but it's it's something that has become incredibly important for my body and for my brain as well, actually, over time.
0: Hmm. Definitely. Now on that, we often talk about having our, our toolkit or our group or our team of people, strategies, items, therapies or physical things that can help us manage our health. And that's if we have a chronic condition or even if we don't, is there something that you'd recommend that our listeners add to their um, repertoire?
1: I <laughs> I have something cheeky, actually, that's Ooh. been on my mind lately. Have you heard of Shakti Mats? I have yes. Yes, so I hadn't. Apparently I'm the last person left <laughs> to actually You're the last hear person about to find <laughs> <laughs> But one of the wonderful health professionals that I have supervised, Ash, who's part of our team at TMC, gifted me one which was very generous when um I finished supervising her and I have become a little bit addicted to it, actually. The physical relaxation and the deep sleep afterwards has just been phenomenal. And for me, I realized from using it how much tension I hold in my back. And so by releasing that before I go to sleep, oh, so good. Mm. Um, But (laughs) maybe a little less of a cheeky recommendation or suggestion would be for people to reflect and understand what their personal values are because that can lead into understanding ourselves much more deeply and also understanding why we get along with some people and potentially not others. And when it is an issue that comes up, we can reflect um, more specifically on what it is that has really resonated with us or has really um, grated on us in that experience.
0: Mm, that's so important that's such a good recommendation and we've never had that before and <laughs> values are so important so definitely a good one so everybody once you finish listening to this episode that sounds like a good idea to sit and then think on values and you could even pop them in your journal and do some work around that
1: yes because actually journeying on your values when you are going through something that's particularly tricky can be a very containing and um, warm experience. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of um, knowing what our values are and being able to articulate them really clearly to ourselves.
0: Mm, Definitely. I would love to chat all about your career trajectory journey, for lack of a better word. Now, (laughs) you are a psychologist and you are the director and principal psychologist at the Mindful Collective or TMC. Did you always want to be a psychologist and what sort of led you to this field so that you are now that director and principal psychologist?
1: Originally, I wanted to be a music teacher, which if you knew me now, um, is wildly hilarious. (laughs) Uh, Definitely not ever um, was ever actually going to be my jam. But in that experience, I um, learned that I really liked watching how some teachers interacted beautifully with kids who had specific challenges going on. So things like fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and mm. autism spectrum disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, I found them really interesting and so started looking into how I could work with those kids more. And over time, as I was starting to study psych and then went into my master's because I am by training an educational and developmentally specialized psychologist, I realized that actually what I was really passionate about was women's health journeys and I observed a lot of situations where men in my life would make decisions for me and I wasn't empowered to make those decisions myself or given the education to make those decisions myself Mm. and so that eventually turned into the Mindful Collective and what we are aiming to do with inspiring, mindful, and compassionate change for people because the word inspire for me is very important because it is inspiring the change, not instructing or making the change for someone. It's leading them to see what they think they need in their lives and in their health journey.
0: Hmm. I love that. And it's so important. And I think something that if you aren't stopping and reflecting on who's making decisions in your lives and what's going on for you, something that could just like keep passing you by. And so focusing in on that women's health practice and supporting women is so incredible.
1: It is. It's very rewarding and I am
0: very interested
1: because I'm about to start a Masters of Science in Medicine for Sexual Health through um, University of Sydney. And becoming a developmental sexologist is um, Mm. what's in my future, I think, because I'm very passionate about that as well, um, particularly in regards to people who've experienced sexual trauma and being able to have a sex
0: life that's actually what they are after. Mm. Yeah, and providing that fulfilment for them and especially after trauma. So that sounds like an incredible course. And uh, I just know that you'll thrive in that. (laughs) I'm very excited to start. (laughs) I know you touched on it briefly around your health journey and that we would get into it. So now I'm ready. Let's do it. Um, I would (laughs) love if you could share your own experiences around navigating the health field from a patient perspective And how those experiences and your sort of journey or, I hate the word journey, but we'll go with it, journey, um, (laughs) has led you or influenced you as a clinician yourself? When reflecting on this, I have two particular experiences
1: with medical professionals as a patient um, that really have stood out to me and have really informed my practice the first was um, and I will put in a bit of a trigger warning because I'm about to Mm -hmm. um, mention some things to do with assault so I had been assaulted when I was um, 17 in our week of uni was the um, first of unfortunately quite a few experiences of rape and assault And I went to my GP to get assistance um, for that um, because the first assault had been quite violent Mm. and the GP gave me information that I wasn't requesting. So, for example, he informed me that he didn't think I was strong enough to make a police report, so absolutely should not do that. And um, he asked me for the person's name, but then as I said, their full name, he Freaked out and was like, I can't know that. You can't tell me that. He put me in with a psychologist for EMDR therapy, which is a type of therapy that helps with processing, which is very evidence-based. However, um, not when someone has been traumatized very recently as it's more about stabilization and creating safety for someone um, after they've had an experience like that going into therapy and so that was very unsuccessful as far as treatment went and was not a very well advised recommendation and so that is one of those examples of times where i had a male gp at the time and in other ways he was an excellent gp um but he was making decisions for me that were particularly unhelpful and then he um decided that he needed to do an examination which was appropriate however he didn't walk me through I hadn't had, never had a pap smear mm-hmm. before so I didn't know what I was about to experience and I actually passed out from pain from that as well so there was a lot of trauma that came from that mm-hmm. one appointment and that is definitely not a rare example I have worked with Countless women who've had these interactions with their GP, and often the GP is quite well-meaning, but it's just not not as much education around what's appropriate. And at the time, I was so young, I didn't realise I could really change GPs either. So well, you
0: don't know when you're younger. You just think, well, that's who I see. And I Mm. think, yeah, and in communication as well. After such a traumatic experience, to then go on to have an even further experience, even further trauma from a medical professional who you should, you place all your trust in. Mm. Yeah. It's very
1: challenging, very challenging. And then from that, um, I eventually found a GP that I resonated with. She's phenomenal. I still see her now, which is, I feel so lucky to have found her. Um but when I had a bit of a strange experience with um, my own brain, so we worked out with her and I that my brain was simulating having a stroke. So I had very similar symptoms to what someone would have having a stroke. And this was about two years ago. And um, I was sent to hospital and then they worked out I'm not having a stroke. So I need to see a neurologist the next day. And Through that experience, the neurologist told me that I had carpal tunnel syndrome, which for those who don't know is to do with the um, carpal tunnel, which is in your wrist and can cause pins and needles and um, a lack of functioning in the hand if it's really severe. However, my hands were actually fully functional, (laughs) which was a really strange experience to be told that a part of my body that actually was functioning okay was the problem that was leading to me feeling paralyzed on my left side. So and my face was drooping on my left side as well. So it was very clearly not simply carpal tunnel. No, <laughs> and I just remember sitting at that appointment. My mom actually came with me because I was very vulnerable at the time. I was extremely yeah, unwell. Yeah, of course. And she she just stared at this doctor with this look of complete disbelief. And the the doctor was lovely in other senses, but she just seemed really bored. And so I just went straight back to my GP that day and said, the the person the hospital sent me to is not appropriate for me. I would like to see someone else. And then I went and saw um, another neurologist who worked out exactly what was going on, fantastic treatment plan, all sorted. And it's just one of those examples of I've learned over the last 10 years that it's so important to find the right team For me and Mm -hmm. also to be picky about that and I'm very fortunate that I'm in Brisbane I'm in a position where I can say you know what I don't really agree with that I am going to get a second opinion or a third opinion um, in order to determine what is the right treatment pathway for me and so those experiences have actually really informed the way that I investigate a diagnosis probably would be the first thing (laughs) with the people that I work with because psychologists do make diagnoses Mm. and I'm now very cautious to talk to someone about what the process is before beginning asking for their consent to begin that process and whether that's actually something that they're after or not and then completing a formulation of their treatment with them in partnership because it cannot it absolutely cannot be a one-way hierarchical I'm the health professional I'm going to tell you what to do that's absolutely not how healthcare should work and it's also not how effective healthcare does work there is plenty of research to show that collaborative healthcare between health professionals and of course between the person seeing those health professionals is gold standard and definitely working with people rather than seeing them as a patient or an almost like ob- an object in some cases um is how the medical model can work at times mm. and i just stay so far away from that which can cause conflict with other professionals <laughs> at times <laughs> um but i i just think
0: consent in healthcare is so again underrated yeah. I and informed consent because you can consent to things mm. without really actually understanding what is going on yes and the grief that can come from that too and the really challenging life
1: experiences that can come from that and the trauma is just so preventable if we see people as people mm. Mm.
0: Yeah. And holistic care is such an important thing and it only takes it. Uh, people kind of think of it almost as if it was like a completely separate thing, but it's just about treating that patient as a person, looking at them as a whole person and taking that little bit of extra time to talk things through, check in with them. And that, like you said, there is so much research out there about how many benefits it has and how improved patient experience can really, it really does show improved patient experience as well. Yes.
1: Yeah. And the ownership that person can then take of their own health and making those informed decisions about, okay, I'm not going to concentrate on this type of therapy at the moment. I'm going to concentrate on this other area of my life. And I've had to make those decisions and many people do, even from the perspective of finances. It would be fantastic to have my women's health physio and my women's health dietitian and my women's health osteo and my gastroenterologist and my gynecologist and the neurologist and my whole team and my psychologist, of course around me all at once but that's just not feasible sometimes and so being able to prioritize and make an informed decision around well this is the area I'm going to focus on first and then I'm going to move specifically into this area and to continue
0: that is really powerful Hmm. definitely and I think that's something we often forget I think we all think oh we've got to go and see all of these people all the time all at once and it gets super overwhelming and cost and financial aspects is such a factor so just looking at again I guess it comes back to values (laughs) we've got a theme going on what (laughs) what part are we valuing at the moment and where do we need to prioritize, like you said, for the moment and then maybe revisiting down the track when needs have changed and things? Yes. And I
1: find that our guests in the studio are often quite pleasantly surprised when they come in and, and tell me, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to focus on dietetics and nutrition for a while. I'm thrilled for them because they've made an informed decision. And when they're, we're talking about what inspired that decision? And they're like, okay, because this is what's going on. And da-da-da. And I'm like, oh yes, you've really thought this through. You've been so mindful in this decision making, so self-compassionate. That is the best thing that you can do right now. You're like, yes, chuck me on hold. Come back when you need to. That sounds like a perfect area for focus for you right now. Man, and I'll be here I,
0: waiting, ready to cheer you on when, yes. when you're back. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. It's very exciting. And hearing the, because we um, at the studio, we have um, different businesses. So we have women's health physios who are actually my women's health physios. It also used to be my women's health osteo as well. So it was kind of like, and my dietitian, so <laughs> my health team that I've slowly convinced to become part of what we're doing with women's health in Brisbane. But we, work together. And so by by getting written and informed consent to speak to other health professionals about someone's care, then I can keep up to date with what's happening. So when they come back, they don't have to whip out the full update list or the trauma PowerPoint again. We can just jump straight into, okay, this is what I've been told by Alyssa, the dietitian from Inner Health or whoever it is, and can just jump back straight into it.
0: Yeah. And you don't have to like Hmm. go through everything all over again. It just, it just makes so much sense. (laughs) Yes. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Now I know that the mindful collective has so many different facets, but I do want to hone in on um, the psychology aspect of it and in particular, mental health conditions. So, I'd love to know why you feel that even in 2021 there is still such a stigma attached to mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression and bipolar and mental health conditions in general. I've been thinking about this a lot
1: lately and my thoughts are that Our society idolises busyness and productivity and this sense of perfectness so highly that the idea that someone has a condition that by popular belief, incorrect, but by popular belief, slows them down or makes them less effective is part of what's perpetuating the stigma around anxiety and depression and other mental health conditions This idea that someone's brain is not functioning in inverted commas the way it's supposed to, which is a whole nother conversation Mm. (laughs) Um, because it is supposed to feel anxious. It is supposed to feel depressed. It is supposed to feel acute stress. Our brains are designed for those experiences, just not for a prolonged period of time. We seem to perpetuate this idea that something must be wrong and that is debilitating for people to know that that's the belief that people around them have but also societally because I hear many many people say to me from when I'm grocery shopping and someone asks what I do and other other (laughs) people are chatting to me at a barbecue where they say oh yes I'm really in support of mental health and they have a chat about it and then later in the conversation, it will be, oh, you know, this person's depressed or whatever. And that I'm like, okay, that's interesting. What assumptions are you making that's led to you saying that? Or have they disclosed that to you? And did they actually feel comfortable with you sharing that with random people? Or is that something that maybe you could keep to yourself and just speak with them about? Um, So it's still considered to be an imperfection and in a society that so highly values this outward perfectionism, I think it's going to be quite a few steps away from being able to really cut down that stigma.
0: Mm. Mm. I think oh, I completely agree and I think obviously the more we talk about it and the more we talk about mental health and put a spotlight on what it looks like and it's not so straight and narrow and this is what anxiety looks like because it is so different for everyone and this is what depression looks like because it is so different for everyone and mm. um, the fact that you know you aren't going to be depressed for the rest of your life like it could just be a particularly tough period and you are experiencing depression and just opening up all of those conversations and normalizing that for society and making people feel less alone yes it's
1: something that needs to be focused on more I have actually had a few people over the last 18 months say like oh, you know mental health kind of there I don't think we need to talk about that as much now and And my response has always been whatever friendship or social group you're in, I want to be in that because that's not what it looks like from where I'm sitting. And we have a lot of work to do in Australia. We may be yards ahead of some countries, but we are nowhere near close to really truly valuing and prioritizing mental health. We are so far away from that. And until we have proper research and proper funding and more societal awareness and until our suicide rate in Australia is zero per per year, we are not there yet.
0: We're just not there yet. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's something to work on and, oh, I can't believe people saying, no, we're good, we don't have to have that conversation anymore. I'd love to join their little bubble. (laughs) (laughs) So would I for a moment, just to see what that would look like. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, speaking of anxiety, um, even taking that step to see a psychologist can be quite anxiety inducing and you can feel nervous and all of the different emotions and feelings about seeing a psychologist if it's your first time or maybe seeing a new psychologist or um a new a new psychologist for something else that you might not have clicked or anything like that what advice or tips or any strategies do you have around managing this
1: firstly I would totally normalize the experience because I've changed therapists earlier this year and I was nervous sitting in the waiting room Ready to whip out the trauma PowerPoint and go through everything, and I could feel my own heart rate increasing. My mouth started to get dry, and I was sitting there thinking, "Ah, oh, yes, this is how people feel when they're in my waiting room before they meet me." So, I want—I would love to normalize that more. Um, I also feel the same way when I'm seeing a new doctor, to be honest. So, being with a um, therapist is a much It can be a much more personal um, and Mm. long-term and deeper relationship. So feeling anxious beforehand shows how meaningful it is to us. But the second thing I would suggest really is doing your research beforehand and testing them out however you can, which might sound really strange. So a lot of therapists nowadays, not all, of course, but a lot do have social media And so you can get a bit of a feel for them, their way of doing things, the way they speak and the way they interact with people, their values. That is a really, really big one because values alignment and it doesn't, no one's going to have exactly the same values as each of us. But having value alignment is very powerful in the therapeutic relationship because it's all about rapport it's about the connection between those two people and their chemistry that is able to facilitate change and there's a bit of a anecdote in psychology that when people first get out of their masters or their early career psychologists or therapists their focus is on making sure they have the tools that are needed and um as you get more experienced, you realize that really it's about what can you do within the relationship you have with that person in front of you as their therapist in order to facilitate safety and security and the change that they're looking for in their life. Tools come secondary to that. So it's really about that connection first and asking around, asking people who they're seeing getting a bit of a sense of who is um, around in your local area and then you can also ring and leave a message and say hey I'd really love to have a five-minute chat with you to see if you're the right fit for me. That's a perfectly appropriate thing to do when looking for a new therapist and if that therapist doesn't have time to make that call then they're not the right therapist for you. So that's a way of kind of working through the copious amounts of therapists that seem to be available online and of course the next thing is being aware of wait times because mm. oh my goodness it's we're so fortunate because we have had ash join our team who bought me the shakti mat oh my goodness who <laughs> you sounds just like an angel <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's phenomenal and she is a counselor and i supervised her for um the last year of her master's and her having her available, we had doctors contacting us just from hearing about what I was talking about on Instagram with her being available, saying, hey, as soon as her books are open, can you please let me know because I really need a women's health focused mental health professional ready to go for my people. So it's really hard to get in with therapists that have specialties in this area at the moment. Um, and so finding the right person with the right expertise, is tricky and it's an investment. It's an investment in our time. It can be an investment financially. I saw three therapists um, after being assaulted. So I was 17, 18 and I saw Mm. three different therapists before I found the right one for me. And some of those experiences were beyond weird. So I always recommend booking in with a few. And if you If someone has the privilege to be able to try those few therapists, giving them a go and then making a decision based on that, I strongly encourage people who come to our studio to do the same, to book at other places that have a completely different approach to us if that person's interested, because that way they get the experience and then they can make an informed decision around who that therapist is going to be for them, because it is a long-term relationship often, not always, but often. Mm -hmm. And because people will, I've had absolute legends that I've worked with where I've worked with them at the end of high school with stress and then a bit of adjustment to uni and to other aspects of life. And then they've come back when they've had a baby or something else has happened in their lives that they want to check in. And so it's such a wonderful relationship to be able to have ongoing, somewhat like we do with our GPs, ideally finding
0: that connection with that person is great. I just, I really resonate with find, like shop, not shopping around, but booking in with a few people and really working at finding someone who clicks with you because otherwise it can really put you off seeing a psychologist. If you do have that negative experience because you kind of get a bit of taste almost and you think, Oh, well, everyone must be like that, but Definitely agree looking around and finding someone who really who you really gel with. Yes. And that's why when you get a feel for the
1: person and even with their social media, we have Evie, our little therapy dog. She's also my pet dog. So we live and work together, which is very interesting. <laughs> sometimes she's absolutely beautiful. But for some people they actually feel more comfortable talking to Evie about experiences that they've had initially. And so I'll chuck my AirPods in and we'll be watching, listening to something so I can't hear them. And they'll have a chat to Evie. And then when they're ready, I'll take them out and they'll either talk to me or they'll say that's enough for me today. And their approaches that we wouldn't necessarily talk about online that often. And we don't have a blog post about it. So people might not be aware that that's an option for them. So by getting to know the therapist a bit and asking them questions, often there's much more tailoring to the individual than what people are aware of when it comes to therapy. There are some modalities of therapy like psychodynamic therapy that is very, um, can be quite rigid depending what the person's seeking support for. And that's appropriate in certain situations. However, it's not for everyone. So by being aware of, the personality-ish of the person that you're seeing, it can be much more effective. I found I'm a bit obsessed with my gastroenterologist. (laughs) She's just so great. And I I went through a few gastroenterologists to find her and she's the first person to successfully diagnose me with the condition that I have. I have a disorder of the gut-brain axis and that's the medic. I'm on um, nortriptyline, which has completely changed Mm. my life amongst having exercise physiologists and everyone else involved in the team but by sticking with my guns and going you know what I still haven't found the right person yet that's why this isn't very clear to me yet and that's okay I'll just book in I'll you know t- do the eight uh, wait time like I'll just wait it out and see who I can find and eventually got there so it's in, that investment of time and mm. finances into finding the right team is something that I don't think is spoken about enough and it leads people to be bitterly disappointed when they have experiences where the person, the health professional lets them down and that's going to happen because health professionals are human and we don't like all human. I don't even agree with everything I say sometimes. <laughs> I exactly. So, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Now, I know we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to know about how a psychologist can form part of our team if we are living with a chronic illness such as endo, know, or PCOS, or if we are trying to conceive. Psychologists and counsellors
1: can definitely play an integral part of someone's journey with chronic illness or trying to conceive and sometimes both with some of the women I work with. um, It's often the part that people don't expect that I've been able to play and I know other therapists are able to play is advocacy with other health professionals and trying to almost translate the medical model system that we live in for that person so that they can then use that information to tailor their healthcare experience to themselves and of course ongoing therapy and being able to check in at different stages of life um, and different stages of illness is helpful but particularly around being a translator and advocating there are times when I have called someone's gynecologist and have said hey like i, I this is what this person said that you suggested. Can you give me some more information? Because they're struggling to understand the recommendation. And can you please talk to them and, you know, have another appointment in the meantime rather than jumping into a laparoscopy or whatever they're jumping into just so that that person feels like they have the power in that situation. It's very important that they feel empowered to make their healthcare decisions themselves and so that's a part of the role that I find that people can be unaware that psychologists and therapists can play.
0: That's so important and such a good, such a good thing to bring up and remind people of as well when they're listening. Um, so, thank you for sharing that. A common symptom we have um, with many chronic conditions are, is around fatigue. And then feeling guilty around changing plans or if we're not feeling well when plans actually do come up, um, needing to cancel or reschedule. What are your top tips around managing this? The
1: first would be something that I know because I do listen to your podcast um, that many people have recommended is surrounding yourself with people who understand to be quite blunt, that it's not about them
0: yes. (laughs) because
1: (laughs) chronic health is something that is about the individual experiencing it. And of course, it does have implications for people in their inner circle. However, if someone is going to interpret frequent change of plans or um, having to reschedule as a negative or personal thing, then that's more about them than it is about the person who is going through their health journey and who is having a particularly challenging time in that moment because humans can be incredibly egocentric and assume that the person isn't prioritizing them or make a bunch of assumptions that actually have nothing to do with what that person is actually going for through and why they are cancelling or rescheduling so That would be my first thing is to try and surround yourself with people who understand that it isn't about them. It's about that person in that moment. And that's just Mm -hmm. where they're at and people who are mature enough to accept that. And, of course, experimenting with what gives someone energy versus what depletes their energy. With fatigue, there can be a bit of a blanket Assumption that anything that releases energy from our body is going to have the same amount of impact on our body and our brain, when that simply isn't the case. So if someone is struggling with fatigue, there will be activities that, although are using their energy, which is a finite small resource when someone is fatigued, they may also get a lot of energy from it. And it may be quite a fulfilling experience that although isn't a complete one-for-one one energy exchange they're not completely depleted at the end of that versus activities where someone does feel completely depleted at the end or when they get home afterwards that's a clear indicator that okay that particular thing is really depleting as opposed to this other activity that's going to reduce someone's energy levels but it isn't to that degree and by having a little. Um, almost like a list. I have a list of activities that I find give me a lot of energy and I'm not talking about like dancing around necessarily (laughs) and getting energy that way, but things like different songs that I can listen to where it will pet me up versus things that I know will just simply deplete me. And sometimes that is people around us and things that they're going through in their own life. Again, that might have nothing to do with us, but we can still feel quite depleted being around them and we don't need to overly interpret that at all necessarily however we can just observe it and go okay at the moment hanging out with this person feels really depleting and so that's not where i'm going to invest my energy for the next month or so where possible mm.
0: i think making that distinguish i can't even say it now i think <laughs> distinguishing that energy exchange isn't the same for every task is so important like you know going and doing the groceries versus going to a specialist appointment is not the same amount of energy and one of them is going to leave you feeling much more depleted than the other yes when we can
1: assume that leaving the house is what's going to cause a depletion of energy when it might be leaving the house to go grocery shopping and deal with a busy crowd and people bumping into each other and that could be much more depleting than going and doing something that is more a solitary activity or where you have the space to breathe. So things like going for a walk in nature could be quite a fulfilling experience, even if it is depleting our physical energy, as opposed to something else that's quite stressful. Mm,
0: exactly. Now on the theme of relationships and friendships and not just romantic relationships but our friends and family I'd love to chat a bit about how we can strengthen these relationships and navigate them whilst also making sure our needs are met too Mm, it is
1: like a game of chess sometimes I think in that we have to be quite strategic and we're kind of playing off the other person as well. My first thought is that finding ways to meet the other person's needs, that someone or friendship or family, it's always helpful to know what someone's love language is. We can then communicate to them in a way that's meaningful to them, but also quite efficient. I love efficiency. I'm all about it. And when we're able to be more direct and targeted, I guess we have less experiences where it's a bit of a misfire. So, for example, if someone's love language is receiving gifts, going and spending quality time walking up a mountain together, although an enjoyable activity might not actually be what really resonates with that person, And so there might be something else that we can do like dropping into their work and giving them a Freddo or sending some flowers or something that is actually going to meet them more powerfully than if we then use our energy in a way that's not as pointed for that person. And that way we can get quite creative too and think, okay, today, this week is going to be, a bed week, I've gotten my period, I know that I'm going to be quite exhausted. And if someone is going through any sort of health issue, that can be exacerbated during that time, depending what it is. So by knowing, okay, this is where I'm going to be at, I need to just roll with the fact that this is going to be a few days of bed rest. And what can I do to connect with people during that time rather than focusing on what we can't do during that time and judging ourselves and not being compassionate to ourselves about that
0: Mm. yeah that's so true I love the love languages I love the love languages um (laughs) I interestingly I've got um them all all three very evenly last time I did it which was funny and then gifts was down the bottom for me um but Mm -hmm. I think when you realize that it's it just sort of changes the game and exactly it is sort of an efficiency and it does you can't just do it with like a loved one or a partner but also with your friends as well knowing what fills their cup up more can definitely make things so much easier
1: And then it feels more personalized for them as well. So, even when we're having a period of less um, activity in our own life and we need to be in that really beautiful, soothing space, we can still connect with people. We don't have to write ourselves off and assume that, oh, well, I can't go to the movies with this person. So, Like, oh, well, I'm just not going to see them and they're probably going to be annoyed at me and like going on this, I guess, spiral of judgment about ourselves. I find that so common with people when they are going through chronic health, um, really acute periods of chronic health and the compassion that we can give ourselves can actually help our immune system and get us going and help us heal over time and so by being aware of how we can be gentle to ourselves in that time and get creative with how we can connect with others it's it's more effective for us because we we need to have those moments where we acknowledge where our body is at and allow it to do its thing
0: oh a hundred percent agree definitely now, our last question, what would you like to see change within the health um, within the pelvic health space?
1: Oh, so many things. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, practitioners valuing providing evidence-based education to people about their bodies because that way then they can make those informed decisions. And also education in schools, that is something that I am working towards um, with Millie Bannister and the charity that she founded, Kind, and All Kind, that I'm on the board of, to try and add in more mental health and more sexual health education into schools in a way that's convenient for the schools, but also really powerful for students to learn early because the education around all of these topics um, mental health and women's bodies and it's just lacking to say the least. Oh, I would add in another one. Yeah. I would love <laughs> it be my Christmas wish list. I would also love to have much more research funded in this area. Um, because We just don't have the data. We have a huge Mm. data gap, particularly in Australia, for women and women's health and women's related issues. And that needs to change. And it is changing, but it's very, it's a lot slower than what I was anticipating. I was looking at some um, stats from 10 years ago to now, and although there are some improvements, it's still nowhere near what I probably would have assumed we would be at if someone had asked me 10 years ago. Yeah. So that would be something else that people getting involved in data collection for pelvic health and mental health, of course, as well, because those two are so, yes. so extrinsically linked. Combined. Oh, inextricably. they yeah. just, they come together, which is, yeah.
0: Definitely. Oh, And also, I just want to give a shout out to Girl Kind because I love that app. I use it every day, actually, to journal. So. <laughs>
1: oh, that's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that. I will have to pass that on to Millie. She's a phenomenal powerhouse and running a non-for-profit a charity is extremely taxing. Definitely. And she does a phenomenal job and is very dedicated to the cause and I am really inspired by her and I'm so, this was so overwhelmed when she asked me to be on the board and we've got quite a few projects in the works together now. So we really enjoy working together and creating
0: that, yeah, that change. Um, And I can't wait to see what comes from that. I think so much good will come (laughs) out of it. I'd love to know what's next for you. I know I said the other question would be my last question, but I lied. I've got another one. What's coming up next for you, (laughs) Amy? What's coming up next for the Mindful Collective? Something that we're working on at the moment that is
1: actually in collaboration with um, Millie and All Kind is Brain Pilot. And that is what we are um, about to launch into high schools for years 10, 11 and 12. And we're starting in three areas, educating peers on how to support their friends, either who are feeling suicidal, who are experiencing panic attacks, or who are self-harming. And we have um, UQ's Social Sciences Research Institute on board to help us validate and make sure that it is absolute goodness that's going into these schools as well, which is an incredible partnership. And... From that, we're looking to expand into pelvic health and also into other areas such as what to do if a friend is homeless and how you can support them. So by providing these little modules that can be completed in the space of one or two periods at school so that they have some information that's actually evidence-based is one thing that's in the works. And then for TMC specifically, we are... I'm really focusing on um, my supervision of other health professionals at the moment. So we have Sophie coming on board um to do her, she's doing her master's of psychology in health psychology, which is probably what I should have done in hindsight. <laughs> Upon <my values>. reflection. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Definitely not going back to do it. Um but yes, yeah, so supervising Sophie and watching her grow and some other students that we've got coming in from UQ as well. And the team that we already have, I'm so fortunate that we have a large team that's really supportive of each other and we really value the culture in the team. We're actually excited because we're starting a book club too, soon too for us in the studio. So mm. it's going to be a really lovely second half of the year. I'm really excited.
0: Oh, that sounds amazing. And brain pilot sounds so needed and something I wish I had when I was in school. So that sounds incredible. And mentoring and, you know, supervising sort of the next generation of health professionals and leaving a positive impact is also so amazing too. Yes,
1: it's very exciting. I really enjoy that part of the role I've created for myself. So (laughs) yeah very inspiring
0: it has been such a delight chatting with you today amy thank you so much for being so giving of your time and for coming on let's talk period today thank you for having me izzy Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk, period, with Amy Kate Isaacs, Principal Psychologist, Director, and Founder of The Mindful Collective. If you loved hearing from Amy and you want even more from her, you can find her over on Instagram at AmyKatePsychologist or at The Mindful Collective. You can also head to The Mindful Collective's website for more info and resources too. There at www.themindfulcollective.co. If you want to keep updated with all things Let's Talk Period, you can follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk Let's Talk Period is an independent podcast so if you did enjoy this episode and want to support the show it would be absolutely amazing if you could subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or if you're listening along on Spotify hitting the follow button to support the show. If you want to help grow the Let's Talk Period community, I would love it if you could share this episode with a friend or a family member or anyone who you think might enjoy listening to our show. You could even share that you're listening on Instagram, on your grid or stories and tag us so we can see. I absolutely love seeing how you guys all listen to the show. This really does help to grow our beautiful Let's Talk Period community and help to find new listeners. Let's Talk Period is produced for educational purposes and the information, recommendations and topics talked about does not constitute medical advice or take into consideration your personal circumstances or medical history.